Global Crisis Bible Prophecy Health and Preparedness You are just in time. 11th Hour Dispatch William Miller began the great Second Advent Awakening movement in America. The folks who are following Miller's movement, who are proclaiming the soon coming of Jesus, that it was going to be a premillennial coming. He was not going to come after a thousand years of peace and perfection on earth, post-millennial. No, these premillennial believers in the 1840s, they were being kicked out of their churches. So the Congregationalist and the Baptist and the Methodist ministers in the 1840s who were disfellowshipping Advent believers, guess what else they were doing? They were getting behind Horace Mann. Why? Because they believed, well, hey, you know what? If we can get all the kids in in the schools, we can indoctrinate them with Protestantism because there's some Catholic immigration happening here and we want to make sure that we have good Congregationalists in our community, good Baptists, good Methodists, not Catholics. And so they sold out. They made a deal with the devil. And here they were a key, key demographic and voting block in moving this, this movement forward. And it's all history from there. In 1852, Massachusetts became the first state in the country to enact a compulsory schooling law. And people at the time, by the way, understood how radical this was. This is not so much talked about in the histories. You've probably never even heard about this. But people at the time sure knew what was going on. In 1850, it was the single biggest topic being discussed in Massachusetts political circles. In 1852, when the law was passed, children were required to go to school. Parents received the notification. A lot of them said, no, we're not going to send our kids to these these Prussian-style schools. Well, the militia came out in many cases and actually marched the children to school. Schools were, in some cases, burned to the ground. Teachers were run out of town by angry mobs. Parents broke into schools and freed their children. And this wasn't happening in every single school. And by the way, I sh- these aren't the heroes of the story. You know, we shouldn't be like, yes, burn schools. No, this isn't a good guys, bad guys story. But this was the response of people who were not happy with this situation. Boston Quarterly Review says, we know what you guys are doing. You're trying to bring Prussian education here, and it's not American. In America, we believe in freedom. We believe in freedom of thought, and we don't want that Prussian stuff here. And seeing this reluctance, Horace Mann and the architects of modern schooling, they started with a small goal. They said, okay, 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 we're only going to require about 10 to 12 weeks per year of compulsory schooling. And you don't have to send your five, six, seven, eight-year-olds here like they do in, in, in Prussia, just age nine to age 12 for around 10 to 12 weeks. But then, of course, slowly their goal was to turn up that heat in the pot and let that frog begin to become acclimated to the concept, and the term would become longer, and the age range would become longer. But again, there were prophetic speakers criticizing and saying, this is not right. Many parents have kept their children at school nearly the year round says Christian Education, page 12. The monotony of continual study wearies the mind. Can you imagine a society where we were actually keeping the children in school year-round? Not so different from today, is it? But people were objecting to this, saying, why would they be in school all year? By 1890, you had every state in the Union enacted a compulsory schooling law, all but Massachusetts. Massachusetts came around finally in 1918. But even in the late 19th century, in the, in the 1860s, 
and 70s and 1850s, the majority of children were still evading the compulsory schooling laws. Only 26 to 42 percent of children were in school. So the majority of them were still living the traditional American life on their farms. And also, I should mention that the schooling system in the 1850s and 60s and 70s and 80s was not purely Prussian from the start. Uh, There were a lot of actually quite rigorous educational principles being brought to the children. A lot of them were being brought into one-room schoolhouses so that they weren't age-segregated like man called for. And a lot of them were doing skilled apprenticeships right alongside their their schooling, their education. And and also, we we had a a shorter term and later schooling going on for the 9, 10, 11, 12-year-olds. So this was starting to backfire, if you will, on on the the planners of society. You're going to see they gain control a little bit later in the story. But the U.S. Bureau of Education recognized this problem, and they referred to what was called the problem of educational schooling. They said, they decried the fact that inculcating knowledge enables the masses to be able to perceive and calculate their grievances. Such an enabling is bound to retard the growth of industry. So the elites of society were saying, you know what, there's too much education going on. Industry is not going to grow when there's so much knowledge being inculcated into the masses and they're going to start to have grievances about their their situation in in the industrial centers of America and industry will not grow as fast. You're going to see this was a major reason for bringing Prussian education into America was to do the same thing they were doing in Prussia, create a working class of human resources. More on that in just a minute. But these two gentlemen you see on the screen are from religious history. Wagoner and Jones in 1888 were independent thinkers. They were questioning the reality of the status quo in the religious world. They were even confronting the religious establishment of their day with Bible truth from God. And you know what was happening in the same year in 1888? While independent thinking and the Spirit of God was moving in 1888, the schooling movement was moving forward as the report of the Senate Committee on Education said, we believe that education is one of the principal causes of discontent of late years manifesting itself among the laboring classes. So in 1888, the government was saying, look out, there's too much education going on again. They're going to become discontent. So they needed to take control of education and and thus take control of the people. But in America, you don't take control of the people through imposing a dictatorship upon them. You don't come at them in your face with a military-style government. You're just not going to get away with that. Force will elicit counterforce. And so what, what they decided to do, and all the way in 1933, we have Lewis Albert telling us what they were doing. It says they would accomplish by education what dictators in Europe are seeking to do by compulsion and force. Now, of course, dictators in Europe in 1933, you know who this is about. This is Hitler, Mussolini, and Stalin. So they're going to do, by education, what the dictators of Europe are doing by force. Take control of the people, right? Elwood Coverley wrote the standard textbook of American history, the American history of education. He states the following in this preface. The school reorganized its teaching along lines dictated by the new psychology of instruction, which had come to us from abroad. So where do you suppose he's talking about there? From abroad, a new psychology of educational instruction being Prussian style. Continuing the quote. Beginning about 1880 to 1885, our schools began to experience a new but steady change in purpose. So the purpose of education in America, the purpose of schooling begins to change. 
And this was the great goal and aim from the 1840s when they founded it. They just didn't get to it now until the 1880s. And what is that change in purpose? Well, everything in the late 19th century, everything German was really in vogue in America. It was really popular and cool. The academics of America would go over to Europe, they would go to Germany, and they would study there and return with the coveted German PhD. And now they would go to work with this great credential of the the highest PhDs in the world, and they would become American university presidents, department heads of, of different, different educational organizations, government officials, administrators of schools. And so in the late 19th century, this Prussianization of American schools really started to begin. American schooling as we know it today was founded during this period of roughly 1885 to 1920. And what was going on? In 1891, there were only 11 college education departments. So this just wasn't a big deal in America. But by 1919, there were 500 college education departments. At this time, they started to institute age-graded classrooms. So you're seven, you're with all the seven-year-olds. You're eight, you're with all the eight-year-olds. So they're segregating kids with their immediate peers. Also, a new concept started to emerge, the concept of having separate departments for separate subjects. So learning started to become compartmentalized. You study social studies over here, you do this over here, and, and you're learning the disconnection of everything rather than understanding the world as a whole. Another thing that was happening is that there was a new innovation. Kids were actually herded from room to room to learn different things at different times and these bells would go off just like Pavlov's dog right this is conditioning this is a great training exercise the children move from here to here bells are going off and these are ideas by the way that's completely foreign to the history of education we, th- we take it for granted like of course there's bells and you move classes that's how school goes well 100 years ago 120 years ago this was not even in place teachers now started teaching the same subject over and over again to a new crowd new group of students who would file into their rooms. And of course, that that alienates so much the teacher-student relationship, that that private tutor, that small one-room schoolhouse experience from the past in America. This whole system is compliance training. It has to do with efficiency. It has to do with system management. It has to do with training the population to be compliant industrial workers to follow what they're told. It has very little to do with true education. It's Prussian style to Jesuit to the core. And again, opposition arose to the schooling movement. This isn't something we just look back on and we say, wow, we can now find out what they were up to because we are good historians. No, no, no. People at the time knew exactly what they were up to. A spontaneous rebellion occurred in New York City in 1914. Students and parents protested these methods that were going on. Rioting burst out in 1917. Windows were smashed in New York City. Demonstrators said no way to the Prussianization of their children. In one instance, 5,000 children marched in protest, and especially the German immigrants complained that their children were being put on what they called half rations of education. They knew that this was a de-intellectualized, dumbed-down curriculum that was not meant for education. They, They said, we will not accept these half rations of education. We hear from other people that were speaking out at the time. New York City mayor was elected who called this Prussian schooling system a scheme, a system by which the Rockefellers and their allies hoped to educate coming generations in the doctrine of contentment, another name for social serfdom. U.S. senators voiced opposition, saying they are moving with military precision all along the line to get control of the education of the children of the land. There are certain colleges that have sought endowments, and the agent of the Rockefeller Foundation or the General Education Board has gone out and examined the curriculum of these colleges and compelled certain changes, it seems to me, 
One of the most dangerous things that can go on in a republic is to have an institution of this power apparently trying to shape and mold the thought of the young people of the country. And what was this institution he was talking about? The Rockefeller Foundation, the General Education Board, the Carnegie Endowment, the big financiers and industrialists of America were the ones who were seeking to take control of American education. Let's explore that theme just a bit further. There was a congressional investigation launched And the U.S. Congress blew the whistle on this. They said, look, these industrialists, these big foundations are spending more money forming American education and schooling than even the government. These are the guys that are gaining control over it. So the quote says this, the domination, this is the U.S. Congress reporting on what's going on, the domination of men in whose hands the final control of a large part of American industry rests is being rapidly extended to control the education and social services of the nation. Between 1896 and 1920, these guys were forming, Rockefeller, Carnegie, and all these names were forming, they were the architects of 20th century schooling. By the way, Four decades later, the Congress also formed another commission to investigate these tax-free foundations, these big industrialists and big financiers, to see what kind of influence they were having upon American society. And in 1954, the Reese Commission reported, the power of the individual large foundation is enormous. Its various forms of patronage carry with them elements of thought control. It exerts immense influence on educator educational processes, and educational institutions. It is capable of invisible coercion. It can materially predetermine the development of social and political concepts, academic opinion, thought leadership, and public opinion. You're listening to 11th Hour Dispatch with author, teacher, and speaker Scott Ritzmer. For more programs and information, visit 11thHourDispatch.com. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Romans 12 verse 2 tells us that there is an effort to conform our minds to the worldly pattern. And where is this mind manipulation agenda more effective than through the 21st century media and entertainment? MTV founder Robert Pittman famously stated, At MTV, we don't just shoot for the 14-year-olds, we own them. It's time to wake up, folks. At every church I speak at, folks say the same thing. Scott, why didn't anybody tell us this before? So, folks, grab a pencil and write this down. Media on the Brain. It's a six-DVD series that will arm you with the vital information on the undeniable effects of entertainment media and how to break free. Visit 11thHourDispatch.com. Use promo code RADIO for a reduced suggested donation rate. Merciful Savior, precious Redeemer and friend, who would have thought that a lamb could rescue the souls of men? Oh, you rescue the souls of men. So now you have. Two separate investigations, 1913 and 1954, one a Republican Congress, one a Democratic Congress. This is not about a political viewpoint here. And both of them drew the same conclusion. Schooling exists to serve corporate interests. Schooling is a controlled enterprise. And don't take their word for it, by the way. That's, that's you know, Congress doing an investigation. That's quite credible. But let the architects of modern schooling speak 
for themselves. John D. Rockefeller, listen to what he has to say himself. These are the folks who created 20th century education, funded it. They, they funded the Columbia Teachers College, which, which turned out an enormous percentage of the teachers, superintendents, the presidents of other teacher training institutions. So these were the guys that were the money behind that. And if you're the money behind it, you're controlling that, right? Here's what the Rockefeller Board of Education stated. In our dreams, we have limitless Resources. Now, it probably doesn't surprise you that the first billionaire in history, John D. Rockefeller, that his foundation would say, we dream of having limitless resources. And here's their dream. The people yield themselves with perfect docility to our molding hands. The first time I read that, I understood, finally, what this schooling system was all about. It's not education. It's in our dreams. They yield themselves with perfect docility to our molding hands. Reading on with the quote. The present educational conventions fade from their minds and unhampered by tradition, we work our own goodwill upon a grateful and responsive rural folk. So here he referred to the educational conventions and tradition. Now, what were those ed- traditional education conventions in America? Well, these rural folks lived in small-town America. They had true education. He says, these things fade from our mind, and we work our own goodwill upon a grateful and responsive folk. We shall not try to make these people. Listen to what they're not trying to do. Everybody thinks this is what school is intended to do. He's saying it's not trying to make these people or any of their children into philosophers or men of learning or men of science. We have not to raise up from among them authors, editors, poets, or men of letters. We shall not search for embryo great artists, painters, musicians, nor lawyers, doctors, preachers, politicians, statesmen of whom we have ample supply. So you've heard it straight from the horse's mouth. This is the Rockefeller Education Board, the single most important institution in the formation of schooling in America, saying the goal is that they would just be docile and we would be able to mold them and they would yield themselves to us. We don't want them to become all of these these accomplished people. We just want our goodwill to be worked upon them. And of course, that means they're going to become compliant industrial cogs in our great machine for for the uplifting of the economy, for the lining of the pockets of the elite. Now, it's not just them, it's also the government. William Torrey Harris, perhaps more than any individual in the government, had more influence in Prussianizing American schools. He was the U.S. Commissioner of Education from 1889 to 1906. He was also the editor of a very important journal called the Journal of Speculative Philosophy. This is what initiated a generation of American intellects into the Prussian way of thinking. So, William Torrey Harris, what did he have to say about the intention of schooling? He says, 99 students out of 100 are Automata, automatons. This means robots. Reading on with the quote. Careful to walk in prescribed paths. Careful to follow the prescribed custom. This is not an accident, but the result of substantial, what he calls, education, which scientifically defined. Now listen to the definition of education according to one of the most important individuals in the formation of American schooling. The subsumption of the individual. Education scientifically defined, is the subsumption of the individual, to subsume individuality into the great collective. We want to alienate people from their own individuality. We want the conventional education, the traditions of the past, to give way to this new system. Scientific definition of education is removing you from your individuality. 
So it's the mega corporations, the big financiers and industrialists. It's the government officials. But also remember that this system is Jesuit to the core. So this is at its roots a religious movement. Listen to Bertrand Russell on this. He says, the scientific rulers will provide one kind of education for ordinary men and women and another for those who are to become holders of scientific power. Ordinary men and women will be expected to be, here we hear it again, docile, industrious, punctual, thoughtless, and contented. And then he says, of these qualities, probably contentment will be considered the most important. In order to produce it, all the researches of psychoanalysis, behaviorism, and biochemistry will be brought into play. So we want total control over the population. We'll even use biochemistry. We're going to use psychoanalysis. We're going to make sure that they are contented with their lot in life and that they are not ambitious to go beyond what we have assigned them. You heard the quotes from earlier. Oh no, education is a cause of discontentment in the working class. And here they're going to be able to think about their own grievances because they have too much ability to think. That's what they were saying. So no, we want them to have this sort of education. In fact, the National Education Association in 1911, 1917, and 1918, where they criticized traditional American bookish curricula. You see, the kids are reading too much. They can't be reading so much because that's going to inculcate too much knowledge. And then they go on and say, this is responsible for leading tens of thousands of boys and girls away from pursuits for which they are adapted. Now, you know what they mean by that. Pursuits for which they are adapted means doing what needs to be done in the factory system of America. By the way, there's these reports also called to, for the replacement of history classes and putting in, in its place social studies. So sure, they will study society and they will get the blueprint that we give them. They will get their imprint of what society ought to look like. More on that in the second session. But history, that's dangerous. Uh, If they understand their history, if they understand too much, if they're able to think critically and analyze patterns and and detect uh, political agendas and and weigh contexts and see what's going on, that would actually not be good if they learned true history. By the way, I was a history teacher for a number of years. And as I've looked at the history profession and history classes as they're done in America even today, it's a joke. Um, We're not even teaching them the basic facts, and that's what we're supposedly trying to do. But if, if you try to teach the basic facts, here's the results. You don't teach them true history. You just teach some isolated facts. But back to the financiers and industrials, this is Frank Vanderlip. He was the president of National City Bank of New York. He explains to you why they favored Prussian education. Why? He goes on and says, I am firmly convinced the economic success of Germany can be encompassed in a single word, schoolmaster. From the economic point of view, the school system of Germany stands unparalleled. And the reason the economy would grow so fast is because you are systematizing and organizing and industrializing everything in the hands of a few. When they monopolize production, they say, we will do it the most efficient. They wrote a lot and talked a lot about this great fear they had overproduction. That word basically meant too many people doing too much production out there. They need to leave it in our hands. And so these big businessmen, the robber barons of the late 19th and early 20th century, feared overproduction. And they said, no, we will have an efficient economy if the people serve in in their place. Now, it wasn't just Frank Vanderlip. Frederick Winslow Taylor was a very important individual in systematizing everything. He founded the field of what was called scientific management, which is about maximize efficiency, turn everything into system, scientifically design everything like a machine. And here's what he had to say. In the past, man has been first. In the future, the system must be first. What I demand of the worker is not to produce any longer by his own initiative, 
but to execute punctiliously the orders given down to their minutest details. So you see, the schooling system is not to develop initiative. It's not to develop creativity. We don't want that. We want them docile. We want them to just execute punctiliously exactly what we tell them to do. And we also hear from H.H. Goddard. He called it the perfect organization of the hive. Taylor's system of scientific management would take over society. It was absolutely the rage in the early 20th century. Everybody was talking about scientific management, scientific management, organized, system, efficiency. In fact, there was one letter to the editor that was published in The Nation magazine in 1911. I find this humorous. The guy writes in and says, I am tired of scientific management, so-called. I have heard of it from scientific managers from university presidents, from casual acquaintances in railway trains. I have read of it in the daily papers, the weekly paper, the 10 cent magazine, and the Outlook. The mass of articles on scientific management threatened to crush all thought out of my brain. And maybe that's actually the intention of scientific management. Crush all thought out of their brain. You get the mechanization of society. And, and by the way, this is going on in the big cities of America at the time that this book, Fundamentals of Christian Education by E.G. White, listen to this statement. This is a criticism of what's going on. She writes, the very atmosphere of these cities is full of poisonous malaria, The freedom of individual action is not respected. A man's time is not regarded as really his own. He is expected to do as others do. All this is false education. Did you hear it, brothers and sisters? It is false education to say, fall in line, do what others do, be a part of the system. No, think for yourself. The same writer wrote that students should be taught to be thinkers, not mere reflectors of other men's thoughts. John Taylor Gatto was the New York State and New York City Teacher of the Year, also a historian, and he wrote the following about what was going on at this time. He says, Nothing posed a more formidable obstacle than the American family. The American family grew and produced its own food, cooked and served it, made its own soap and clothing, and provided its own transportation, entertainment, health care, and old age assistance. It entered freely into the cooperative associations with neighbors, not corporations. If that way of life had continued successfully, as it has for the modern Amish, it would have spelled curtains for the corporate society. An intricately subordinated industrial commercial system has only limited use for hundreds of millions of self-reliant, resourceful readers and critical thinkers. So the American family stood in the way. And at the time... Childhood in America certainly existed as it ought, but childhood didn't perpetuate itself into the teen years and into adolescence. In 1904, the concept of an adolescent was invented by G. Stanley Hall. He was the first assistant to, guess who, the prophet of modern schooling, Wilhelm Wundt. And so G. Stanley Hall wrote about adolescence. And he said, you know, at the ages of these, these what we would call the teenage years, that the children need to be kept in school. So they extended childhood. In American history 150 years ago, a 12-year-old, a 13-year-old started to dress like an adult, act like an adult. Youth was an age of, of becoming an adult, not this extended childhood period of adolescence where you're in this phase where you're your own thing. No, it was a time where you started taking on adult responsibilities. And, and this was something that could not be, right? G. Daniel Hall wrote that these teenagers are a dangerous group because we've got to corral them into this system in order to get everybody to think the way that we need them to think because they'll become having an initiative and, and become independent thinkers. And that's a dangerous, dangerous thing. Well, even as late as 1930, 
not everything was under the control of these architects of modern schooling. Old-fashioned teachers were still having this disturbing proclivity to stress heavy reading assignments, intense and challenging dialogue and discussion, reading assignments that were very rigorous. There were still 150,000 one-room schoolhouses in America. While they founded this Prussian system in the early part of the 20th century, they didn't consolidate it completely until the last half of the 20th century. I'm going to close with a quote from Fundamentals of Christian Education. I beg of parents to place their children where they will not be bewitched by false education. You see, this is witchcraft. This is spiritualism. This is something that's not mere human beings with mere political and economic agendas. This is something that the devil is seeking to do to capture their minds, to bewitch their minds. Reading on with the quote, their only safety is in learning of Christ. He is the great central light of the world. All other lights, all other wisdom are foolishness. To financially support this broadcast, visit 11thHourDispatch.com. Here's Scott Ritzema with another final minute message. The Apostle Paul in Philippians, he was talking about those in the church that he was grieving over. He was weeping. He said, I consider things of this world rubbish that I might gain Christ, but there are others that make me cry enemies of the cross of Christ. Paul says their destiny is destruction. They are literally destroying themselves. Why? Because their God is their stomach, their own appetite for pleasure. Their minds are on earthly things. And he says that our citizenship is in heaven. When we consider the things of this world to be rubbish, like in verse 8, I consider everything a loss that I might gain Christ. Everything that is not of God is rubbish to me. That's a very strong Greek word right there. Rubbish that I might gain Christ, then we'll know our citizenship is in heaven. Brought to you by Belt of Truth Ministries.org.